You are listening to the Compliance Conversations podcast by Healthicity. If you work in the healthcare industry, you know how crucial compliance is to your bottom line, your reputation, and the success of your organization as a whole. If this is your first time listening, welcome. A transcript of every Compliance Conversations episode can be found at www.healthicity.com slash resources, along with a ton of other thought leadership materials. You can add us to your RSS feed and iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Now, let's get on with the show. Compliance Conversations is sponsored by Healthicity. Healthicity designs software and services that simplify compliance and auditing challenges that reduce your risk and save you money. Where others see complexity, we see simplicity. For more information, visit healthicity.com. Welcome, everybody. This is CJ Wolf, Healthicity's Senior Compliance Executive, and welcome to another episode of Compliance Conversations. Today, we are talking with one of our coding and auditing experts, Sharla Prilliman. Welcome, Sharla. Thank you, CJ. Glad to be here. Glad to have you on again. You've visited with us once before, and your expertise is much much appreciated. We ca- we're calling Charlotte back on a topic that, that we think is really important about medical students. Um, but before we get there, I just want to give Charlotte a chance to uh, remind our listeners, Charlotte, of a little bit about your background and what you do now. Okay. Well, I'm currently a regional vice president for Healthicity, and I have been in this medical coding, billing, compliance industry since way back in the early 80s. Uh, Our topic today has to do with teaching physician rules, and for the rest of you who've been around for a long time, you remember we had some major changes back in the 90s to how Medicare was uh, interpreting their information. So this is another new change, and part of my responsibility is to keep up with those changes and try to make sure all our customers are informed. Yeah, thank you. And we'll we'll jump into that. Uh, You know, one thing I wanted to say about Sharla is, in addition to her years of experience, what's really, I think, valuable is that she's dealing with different clients on a daily basis. And so um, it's one thing to to say, yep, I've been working for this same organization for 20 years or something like that. And that's good and valuable. Don't get me wrong. But Sharla is interacting with folks from all over the country. So she gets a real um, perspective and a real, you know, she's got her finger on the pulse of what others are thinking and doing throughout the industry. Uh, and so I really appreciate that about Charla's uh, expertise. And and she she mentioned that one of the things we wanted to talk about, or the main thing we want to talk about today, is the teaching physician rules and the CMS publication, um, an announcement back in February of this year uh, that seems to allow, and we're going to kind of talk about this, of what exactly it might mean, um, about medical student documentation in the rec- medical record and how that applies to uh, the physician's note. So, Charlotte, before we get there, can you maybe just explain, you know, what historically, what has the rules, what have the rules been when it comes to medical, stu- medical students documenting in the medical record and what you're allowed, have been allowed and not allowed in the past before this announcement to count towards an E&M? Well, in the, in the past, CJ, evaluate, um, evaluation management services, as you know, are comprised of three key components, history exam and complexity of medical decision-making. And in the past, where medical students have been allowed to certainly uh, write down that which they do in, in their learning role within the medical record, when capturing the evaluation and management service level, 
anything written by a medical student except for two parts of the history, review of systems and past family social history, has been invisible to uh, building that level. So it's been, you know, it's been a dilemma for uh, medical students. How do they learn to document if none of their documentation can count? Right. And I'm using air quotes, count. Right. <laughs> uh, for their evaluation and management level. Yeah, good point. And, you know, and we all kind of know that historically um, the these rules are what really uh, started a lot of compliance programs for a lot of organizations. Uh, the PATH audits, these were known as PATH audits, physicians at teaching hospitals, the fact that those rules weren't being followed is what caused a lot of uh, academic centers to, to, to settle for multi-million dollar uh, agreements and settlements. And a lot of uh, compliance programs started around uh, that time back in the 90s, um, right? Exactly. And so and, this and is... And that's exactly where I was in the 90s, was, was getting involved in compliance through those PATH audits where uh, Medicare found that the documentation... Uh, was insufficient for separate billing of those services. Exactly. And um, and since that time, there's been a lot of uh, regulation provided by CMS in the Medicare Claims Processing Manual about, um, you know, how residence notes can be used and what documentation needs to be there in order for a physician uh, to count some of that information to potentially boost so to speak, that uh, E&M level, and even, you know, procedures and the rules around procedures and all those sorts of things. So it's a real pertinent area. Absolutely. Uh, it's from a compliance and an auditing perspective. So uh, we thought it'd be good to talk a little bit more about it. So, Charlotte, maybe you can just explain uh, as much as, as you feel is right of what the announcement was um, and what you see as some of the kind of the eyebrow-raising um new things that this announcement brought about? Well, you know, if you, if you look at the actual uh, transmittal, and, and I always like to go to those because you see the changes written in red font as, composed, as compared to the black font, what it used to be, and it really illuminates, at least in my mind, uh, what those changes mean and gives me a way to think about them. If I just read them in a summarized format without that red font, uh, I think the changes get a little math. And what this change says, it starts out with students may document services in the medical record. Wow. If that's where you stop, yeah. it sounds as if student documentation will now support evaluation and management coding. But you have to go on. Right. And, and this is where I've, I've had a lot of conversations with um, some of our clients who have said, what should we do? And, and we're in agreement with, with most of our clients. We've been pretty conservative because this goes on to say the teaching physician must verify all of the student documentation or findings, and all and or are in red letters. And it goes on to say after that, the last sentence I think is probably the most, um, it gives me the most reason for pause to really think about this, the teaching physician must personally perform or re-perform the physical examination and medical decision-making activities of the E&M service being filled, but other student 
documentation, and the, the last few words are, are a paraphrase. Uh, so when I read that, okay, so the student used to be able to do the two, two of the three parts of the history, the ROS and the past family social history. Now, it seems to me that now the student may also do the HPI or the history of present illness documentation, and, and they can do the exam in medical decision-making as long as the billing or the teaching physician personally performs it and documents it. So with that personal performance, maybe you could use a student somewhat like a scribe, but mm. I'm not sure that meets the intent of teaching. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. And you you mentioned the importance of going to the transmittal, um, and I, I think we mentioned that before the before the um, before we started recording, this is uh, transmittal three nine seven one. Is that correct? That's correct. And and the date is February second of twenty eighteen, with an implementation date or an effective date, I should say, backdated to January first. Yeah. So this is already live so and going all of this year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what it did was it was updating the, the chapter 12 of the Medicare claims processing manual. Chapter 12 is the physicians and non-physician practitioners piece. So um, really interesting. So tell me why, what gives you pa- what reason to pause? What, what concerns do you have um, if, if clients or others that you know were to just like go into this, you know, full steam ahead? Well, it, it's just like in the 90s. Most of those path audits were based on documentation, or I shouldn't say most, perhaps, but, but a, good, a good portion, on documentation format, where the teaching physician believed that they were attesting of their personal participation in a service when they said, seen and agreed. Right. Medicare ruling is seen and agreed doesn't tell me you were personally present and personally participated in the care of this, of this particular patient for this particular visit. And I fear that if we jumped on the bandwagon, so to speak, and started counting all of the student documentation towards the n levels, we might end up in the same boat yeah. where where the, the words could be interpreted that way from the beginning sentence. But as I read further, that personally performed or re-performed phrase stopped me in my tracks. And how will I know if I'm reading a note? And, you know, when I do conversations with physicians about documentation, I always remind them that somebody who's reading their note for an audit purpose is removed from the patient both in time and in space, yeah, and and probably also in training. Uh, so the only way they're going to know if that teaching physician personally performed those items is if the teaching physician says, "I personally performed these items," and fill in those blanks in in a you know in a standard documentation format. Right. Well, and that's kind of where I was going to ask the next question. That. Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, if the student's documentation is all that's there, then removed in time and space, I think a reasonable person would assume the student did that work. Right. 
right? Because the the point that um, you read earlier is the teaching physician must verify in the medical record all student documentation or findings. So let's say I'm going to play the devil's advocate here and I'm going to be the doctor and be like, well, look, this is a gift from CMS. I get to use this medical student. I'm just going to be in heaven. So what do I need to do? If if I'm the doctor talking to you and I say, can't I use the same uh, teaching physician attestation that I've used for residents? So if I've gotten good at making sure I follow all of those rules, do you think that's the same kind of threshold that's going to be required to include the, the student's uh, documentation? That's what I'm afraid people are going to think, but I don't think so. Oh. I think the personally performed or reperformed statement tells us that that threshold is going to be a lot higher. And almost like the old style where the physician had to attest to each of the three components of an E&M. Right. Now, when, when you're talking about a resident, the teaching physician needs only to demonstrate his personal participation in the care. Uh-huh. And he doesn't have to say, I'm evaluating this history. I mean, evaluating this or, or attesting to the history, attesting to the exam, attesting to the medical decision making. Uh, as long as it's, it's clear that, that he did participate, he doesn't have to redo each part. I think here we have to redo each part, and and it says so. It does say so, and so that's I kind can't of which the word. Yeah, you know, in in my experience, and it's been a few years, but I used to work uh, for academic medical centers. Doctors are busy; they get confused on this billing stuff, and they struggled with um, treating the uh, the NPPs or the non physician practitioners and the residents differently from a documentation standpoint. And we know that the CMS regs have some specific differences for what a physician has to do if it's a uh, resident versus if it's a nurse practitioner or a PA. And I I kind of agree with you. I think a lot of physicians are just going to lump, they lump all of these people in one bucket, even though the regs don't allow for that. But in their mind and in their practice, Sometimes they do that, and they're, like you said, they're probably just going to treat it the same way. And rather than in their minds have different attestations that are appropriate, they're going to say the same kind of attestation, and they're going to get it wrong uh, when it comes to a student because it says they have to personally reperform it. That's my fear. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I've talked to, I have a friend of mine um, from one of those institutions and uh, those academic institutions, and he told me they are not going to be proceeding with this um, in a big way. Um, Now, they did say, you know, if they're auditing, so it's one thing to proactively kind of take this and run with it. It's another that if you're doing audits and, um, you know, it comes to paying back dollars um, and you actually have student documentation and it actually, the physician did it the right way, um, not so, you know, quote unquote, ding the physician because technically it meets the reg. What are your thoughts about that? Because you also do audits. And so from an auditing perspective, so let's say an organization decided, um, you know, we're not going to proactively, uh, you know, prompt physicians to do this. Um, but when you're doing an audit and one physician has done it, um, are you going to make them, are you going to recommend that they pay it back if it does meet the regulation requirement? 
Not if it meets the regulation requirements. Of course not. Yeah. Um, I think I would, you know, on audit, I would be looking very carefully for evidence that the physician reperformed the work. Yep. And if that evidence is 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 apparent in the record, then I would absolutely allow it. Uh, a court, and, you know, unless of course they change change chapter twelve again. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> as it stands right now, I would allow it. I might, you know. To date, I've not seen any records like that, but some of my academic customers have said, you know, what do you think is the best practice? We want to be conservative and have our student documentation completely separate from our physician documentation. And that's the position that everybody I've spoken to is taking. I think that's, that's safe and conservative. But if, if the criteria were met, I would certainly allow it on audit. Yeah. And, and that's kind of what's going to be my next question. You kind of answered it. But if you have any further comments of, you know, what are you hearing out there? Because you do have exposure to so many different clients throughout the country. It sounds what I'm hearing you say is that most are very cautious about this at this point. That's what I've heard. And, and you know, to, to, you know, full disclosure, most of my conversations have been with uh, compliance people who are, uh, charged with evaluating whether or not a change is is something that is useful or helpful. Um, and to date, everybody that I've talked to has said conservative is the best approach. Yeah, I that's and I haven't talked to nearly as many as you have, but that's what I've heard on the few people that I've talked to. Uh, just so that we can be clear, this change because sometimes people hear this in like the headlines. Um, and then they extrapolate to all sorts of areas. <laughs> so I just want to kind of level set a little yeah. bit here. Just to be clear, this is only in the E&M portion. Uh, we know that there are teaching, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, um, we know that there are teaching physician guidelines, for example, if a minor procedure or a major procedure is being done. Is it is it accurate for me to say that this is only a change in the E&M portion, so people should not extrapolate these changes into procedures? Absolutely. And, you know, like I said, I knew we were going to talk about this, so I wanted to make sure I could actually see the transmittal. And the, the second-level title is EM Service Documentation Provided by Students. So it's pretty clear that we are in the evaluation and management services conversation, and it should not be taken to apply to any other kind of service. Yeah, you know, because sometimes I – not that – not that many are this way, but I've I've worked with my share of docs who you give them an inch, they take a mile. Um, and so, you know, they say, oh, yeah, I heard that I can use medical students now. And so then I think that means for everything. <laughs> so I just wanted to make that yeah. clear for yeah. our listeners. And I think that's import- an important clarification. And, and I might add to that, you know, when we talk about residents in this world, residents are licensed physicians. Yep, that's right. Students are not. That's right. And uh, they do not have insurance allowing them to provide medical services. So uh, they really shouldn't be treated the same, in my opinion. Right. No, I I agree. Um, Let me um, also ask, so, you know, because I'm looking at the transmittal and you and I reviewed it as well. Has there been anything else other than the transmittal announcement that has come from CMS like maybe a audio recording or a webinar or a 
training or anything. It just seems like here's the red, the words in red lettering, and then good luck. We're not giving you any guidance on what it means. Or has there been additional? Well, I think there, I think there's a MedLearn Matters synopsis of the change, uh, but I'm not aware of any uh, webinar or other kind of, of training. Okay. The other thing I wanted to ask you is um, we all, most of us know that Medicare is a national program. It's it's administered by MACs in regions, um, Medicare administrative contractors. Have you heard or seen any MACs commenting on this new thing? You know, sometimes they'll put it in a newsletter or they'll they'll put an FAQ out. Have you seen anything that from a regional or local level? I have not seen anything to date. And and that is something that our department um, regularly does in, in audit services is we do monitor uh, those publications as they come out. And to date, nobody has seen any. Yeah, okay. Um, the other thing I wanted to touch on was, you know, a lot of people in a billing compliance program or auditing program or even just an education program, organizations will say, we're going to follow the Medicare rules um, for all payers because they're typically the most strict. So, you know, what do you guys do when it's not a Medicare patient and either a student or a, a resident is used? Let's say it's a commercial payer or let's say it's Medicaid. Um, how do you deal with that from an auditing perspective or maybe proactively from educating physicians and coders? Well, that's, that's one of those difficult questions. Um, some of our clients are adamant that they want teaching physician rules applied across the board. It's my personal opinion, since the teaching physician rules are designed to not double pay because there's funding coming from the General Medical Education Fund. Right. So uh, Medicare isn't going to pay twice for the same service is, is kind of the, the foundation of that rule. If there is no GME money involved, for, let's say, any commercial payer, uh, I think that if you have supervision that meets licensure safety rules, that one should not apply the teaching physician rule to um, other kinds of services. Medicaid's kind of a funny mix because part of Medicaid money is federal money and part of Medicaid money is state money. Right. And there are at least two states, I think, who have in their Medicaid manual absolute instruction to apply the same standards. So if that's part of the billing instruction manual, I would certainly suggest following that. And I would audit according to, to that information. And that's a great point. Everybody. And I appreciate you saying that because, and I think it demonstrates your expertise that, um, you need to know that, right? That people need to know that Medicaid, some Medicaid manuals or instructions actually allow for it, but it's going to vary by state. And so getting somebody who, who knows what they're talking about and works with clients throughout the country, it's important. Um, and of course, you can also, you know, research it and make sure that you find out what your state requires or doesn't require. Um, from a commercial payer standpoint, we frequently tell me if this is what you think about this, uh, you know, we've always said, you know, you have to typically look at the contracts with those commercial payers. Now, obviously, most of those contracts don't address it. Um, but that's really, you have to kind of think of these things when it comes to commercial payers. 
from a contractual standpoint? Would you agree or, or disagree, or do you have other insights? Well, I, I think that's a very wise uh, piece of advice to give to uh, people in most billing areas. Uh, I, but I would add again that it, for this particular, for teaching physician rules, I think the, the presence or absence of GME monies is uh, very significant in a, if there's a contract is silent to to understand that to mean that it doesn't apply to us at all. Yeah, I think that's I think that's spot on because you're right. This is only an issue because Medicare has made lump sum GME payments uh, to teaching programs, um, and then what we're talking about when it comes to teaching physician rules is what's required to allow them to bill in addition to that reimbursement, or excuse me, that payment that's already been made, for them to bill professionally for their own personal service, what threshold has to be met. So I think that's a good context to set all of this in. Um, we're kind of coming to the end here, Charlotte. I just want to give you kind of the last minute or, or so. If there's anything that I let, left out that you think um, people should be aware of or be thinking about when it comes to this new announcement. No, CJ, I think we've covered the basics and, and some of the, um, the questions that still arise. I, you know, I think we'll all be wise to, to monitor CMS and the local map carriers for additional clarification. Yeah, I think you're spot on. And you know, what I've observed over the 20 years I've been doing compliance is announcements come out. It usually takes a little while for people just to get their feet wet. And then, you know, you start to get enforcement maybe a year or two years later. And so sometimes it takes time. You don't want to be that first case. So I think your advice about being conservative is right. wise <laughs> um, because what happens is typically, you know, a year or two years down the road, a lawsuit comes out or something. And then that case law kind of defines um, the parameters a little bit more. So um, I agree. Yeah. So our advice in general is to is to be careful. Um, but Charlotte, thank you so much for your expertise and your time. We really appreciate it. And um, we will sign off here for another episode of Compliance Conversations. And we hope you uh, tune in to our next episode. Thanks, everyone. Compliance Conversations is sponsored by Healthicity. Healthicity designs software and services that simplify compliance and auditing challenges that reduce your risk and save you money. Where others see complexity, we see simplicity. For more information, visit healthicity.com.